0: Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way.
1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, I'm Wanda Wallace. People are regularly asked to lead teams where the members are located in different countries, or sometimes they're asked to lead a workforce where their peers are in different countries, and it's a matter of getting people together and collaborating across country boundaries. And occasionally still, we see people being asked to take an expat assignment in a different country. So for most of these people, they are experts and expert leaders in some aspect of their role and often in the content. But where they're not the expert is in the subtle ways of communicating and working in an unknown culture. So what we want to talk about today are what are the common mistakes that people make when they are trying to work across a different culture, different country cultural boundary. What do you need to do to understand those cultural differences and how do you get the best of your colleagues from around the world? So I am delighted to welcome my guest today, Erin Mayer who's the author of The Culture Map, Breaking the Invisible Boundaries of Global Business, Erin is a professor at INSEAD, which is one of the world's leading international business schools, and she's been focusing for a number of years on helping global leaders navigate the complexities of a multicultural environment. She's worked across Africa, Europe, the United States, and lots of other places, and as you're going to see, there's a lot of insight about her communication patterns and business systems and the differences between those that will be easy to um, understand and take advantage of. Erin has published frequently in the Harvard Business Review, including a 2015 HBR article um, that is fabulous. She's also done a number of publications for New York Times, Forbes, The Times of India. She's been interviewed on CNN, Bloomberg TV, the BBC, NPR and she's been named the one of 2015's thinkers 50s on the Radar Award as well as 30 HR influencers of 2016. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Nice to be here with you Wanda. I am really thrilled about having you as a guest because I have followed your work for quite a while and I really like your perspective on this cross-border culture. So really looking forward to talking about it. So you focused on a bunch of dimensions that really separate different um, cultures. And again, cultures, we're talking about national cultures, country cultures, not necessarily corporate cultures. Give us a quick overview of what are the key components that make up different cultures?
2: Yeah, so basically what I've done in my work is uh, develop these eight behavioral scales that look at things like how we build trust differently in different countries or how we make decisions in different parts of the world, and then I have uh, up and down these eight scales about 55 different countries that are positioned um, up and down the scales so that you can start looking at the relative gaps between your own country and the country that you're working with and, and think practically about what that means for your success. What's really important about the structure is that um, it's not about like what is that culture like. Instead, it's about looking at the relative distance. I'm just going to give you an example of that. I worked uh, a while ago with a team where I first had just Americans and French on the team and I asked the Americans you know, what's it like to work with the French and the American said well Erin, you know the French they're always late and they're really chaotic and disorganized. A little later, a group from India joined the same team, and when I asked the Indians what's it like to work with the French, they said, well, Erin, you know the French. They're really rigid, and they're so focused on the punctuality and structure of things that they're not able to adapt to the cultures around them. They are to when things change around them. And that happens because we see France falling in between the U.S. and India on the time orientation scale. Uh, So that's what I do. I help uh, provide a system so that you can tease out and decode these differences in your own work.
1: Okay. I like that, the focus on it's not so much the relative, the numbers of where you are, but it's the differences between one culture and the next. And indeed, we see different cultures depending on our own bias as either one side or the other now, just to articulate so I get the labels out there, their eight scales are communicating, um, evaluating, leading, deciding, trusting, disagreeing, and scheduling. So those are the components that make up this model. Before we launch into talking about how, what do you do about these and how do you recognize them, how did you get to do this work? Why did you create this map? Well... <laughs> Okay, so I'm, I mean, I'm from
2: the U.S., right? I was actually raised in a very monocultural place in Minnesota, but then, as an adult, I started moving to other countries. First, I moved to uh, Southeast Asia, and then I moved to Africa, and then 17 years ago, I moved to France. So I, I live in... Paris. Currently, my husband is French. My kids have recently announced to me that they are French. I've received that information for them. Um, but I originally got interested in this when, in my one of my first, when um, my first jobs working in the U.S., I took a trip to Japan. And when I was in Japan, I, I gave this short presentation, which lasted about 20 minutes long, to a group of 30 Japanese people. And at the end, I asked if there were any questions, and no one raised their hand, so I went to sit down. My Japanese colleague, who was traveling with me, said, You know, Erin, I think there were some questions. Can I try? So I said, sure, and then he stood up and he said to the group, you know, Aaron Meyer has just spoken with you. Do you have any questions? No one raised their hand, but this time he just stopped, and he silently observed the group. And as he looked around, you know, he kind of like scanned the audience, he stopped on one person who was just sitting there motionless, and he said, oh, do you have a question? And the person said, thank you, I do, and he asked a very important question. And then he did the same thing several times, like saying any other questions, no one raised their hand, and then he'd say, oh, do you have a question? Yes, I do. So afterwards, I said to him, well, how did you know that those people had questions? And he thought about it, and he said... Well, it had to do with how bright their eyes were. And I thought, wow, you know, like, for me, coming from Minnesota like I do, that is really challenging. But then he clarified. He said, well, you know, Erin, in Japan, we don't make as much direct eye contact as you do in the West. So when you ask the group if there were any questions, you know, most people are not looking right at you. They're looking somewhere else. But I noticed that there were a couple of people in the room that were looking right at you, and their eyes were bright, which shows that they would be happy to have you call on them if you would like to so then the next day I give another presentation again I asked if there were any questions again no one raised their hand but that time I just wanted to try so I did what he suggested you know I um, I just stopped And I silently observed the group, and I saw immediately that he was right, and it was clear. Most people were not looking right at me. I saw, I noticed that when I thought about it. And there was this one Japanese woman in the audience who was looking, like, right at me, right in my eyes. And when I looked at her, she held my gaze. Now, whether or not her eyes were bright, I don't know, but I, I really wanted to try, so I made a little gesture to her, and she nodded her head, and I said, do you have a question? She said, thank you, I do. In any case, this experience just got me uh, thinking about how there are so many those subtle, invisible communications that happen when we are working with our colleagues and that those communications are different from one part of the world to another. So it made me want to start researching and studying whether or not there was a system that I could develop that would help people to better pick up these messages. And that's what led me to the culture map.
1: I love it. I can just, I mean, I do understand for my own work in Asia that you have to give a little bit more time before people will raise their hands or ask a question. But I had never heard this story about the eyes and the direct eye contact. I'm going to try that now. That's incredible. Okay, this also strikes me, Erin, as some of this communication is very subtle and it's very body language, if you will. And it would explain why we have such a difficult time trying to do communication effectively with teams that are scattered around the world by telephone, because we're missing all of that context, as I know you know as well. All right, so for those, um, if you're interested in knowing more, Erin has a fabulous graphic that she uses to map out the culture and along the eight dimensions, and you get a nice little graph that describes one culture versus another culture. If you're interested in looking at this, you can go to her website, erinmayer.com, erinmeye dot slash tools, and that'll introduce you to some of the maps and tools and things that are available. All right, so Erin, let's talk about leading, because that's one of the key components here. How does this work? Why does it matter? T- tell us about this leading component. Well, I think one of the very most
2: uh, cultural things that impacts our effectiveness internationally is that how we learn from since we're young children, to interact with authority has such a a strong impact on how we treat our boss and what we see as good leadership. So, I mean, just to get you thinking about this, like in some cultures, um, as children, we learn that, you know, the, um, our parents should be seen, uh, should be shown a lot of respect, we shouldn't uh, contradict our parents, we should do just what we're told, and in these countries, like these more hierarchical countries, we also learn that when in a classroom, that the teacher is kind of like the ultimate authority figure, so we call the teacher by an honorific term. We uh, take the material, quietly and res- uh, the material quietly and respectfully. Then in other... Co- so, like, I mean, we would see that across Asia. We would see that across Africa and Latin America. On the other hand, in countries like uh, the Scandinavian countries or the Netherlands or um, in Australia, the um, children learn that um, authority figures are kind of like facilitators haters among equals. So, like, if you go into a classroom in Sweden, you will see that the children, and they'll call the teacher by her first name, and the teacher kind of gives debate topics that the children can contradict or agree with the teacher as they like, and the teacher is really like, you know, an equal with the students. So this, of course, then has a, a huge impact. On, and in the U.S., I mean, we're a rather egalitarian country, but not an extreme egalitarian country like um, like the Scandinavian countries or the Netherlands. So then this has a big impact in the work environment when we're leading internationally. I had a, a, a funny example a while ago when I was working with this Dutch brewing company. And Okay, so the Netherlands is a super egalitarian country and they purchased this, um, this big operation in Monterey, Mexico. Uh, so, you know, Mexico a little bit more hierarchical. Mexico learn from a young age to show res- you know, a good deal of respect uh, to, the, to the boss. And I had these Mexicans who were now managing Dutch people, and one of them said to me, you know, Erin, managing Dutch people is absolutely incredible because they do not care at all that I'm in charge. So I, I go into these meetings, I'm trying to roll out my strategy to get everybody on the same page, and my staff, they're contradicting me, they're challenging me, but they're taking my ideas off in other directions. This poor Mexican manager, he said, you know, sometimes I just want to get down on my knees and plead with them. You know, please don't forget that I'm in charge. Um, so I think that's a very telling example because it shows that in today's global world, it's no longer enough to know how to lead you know, the Dutch way or the Mexican way or the American way or the Chinese way. We have to be flexible enough and knowledgeable enough to adapt our style to the population that we're working with in order to get the results that we need.
1: Okay. So when you, I can't resist this, when you're coaching that Mexican leader who believes that they're all challenging his right to lead in some way, what do you advise him to do? Well, I think
2: when you're leading internationally, I mean, there's several different things that you have to do. First of all, you have to learn a lot about the country before you start working in it. And that's what I try to do with the Culture Map uh, book and tools, is just give people the knowledge and the system so that they can start working on it. And the second thing is, once you understand the differences, you need to talk about them a lot. And I think everyone likes to talk about, I know everyone likes to talk about their own culture. So if we show curiosity and humility and we ask a lot of questions, and then we, also, you know, uh, speak about our own culture in a humble way, we can get a really good dialogue going on around, around this. But I think ultimately, that Mexican guy has to learn to adapt. He has to learn to, you know, just as in our own culture, we use situational leadership, we adapt our style to the person that we're working with. When we work across the world, we have to use a much greater level of situational leadership, learning to manage, you know, in countries like, uh, like Sweden, where the, you know, the, the boss and the, the, the vice president and the receptionist have kind of like equal weight in the decision versus in countries like Nigeria where uh, children learn at a young age to lie down when an older person walks into the room. And I do think that we can learn these skills, but it takes
1: time. Wow. Lying down. That would be fascinating. So I'm intrigued by this one. I'm going to come back a bit to my own culture in the U.S., at least where I grew up. Um, Most people say of the U.S. that it's a very open society. But on your dimension between egalitarian and hierarchical, I don't think it's nearly as egalitarian as, say, Sweden, for example or any yeah. number of other Scandinavian and Nordic countries. But it's also not as hierarchical as someplace like Japan or Korea. And I think people have a false assumption about what the U.S. is like as a culture on exactly that dimension.
2: Yeah, well, in the U.S., I believe that because maybe because we have so much contact with Latin America or maybe with, you know, immigrants coming from Asia, for example, we come to see the American culture as very egalitarian. And, of course, we are an egalitarian country in comparison to those cultures. But in, um, so if you like, which countries are more egalitarian than the U.S.? I could, but it's not that many, but I can could, I could list them, right? So you have the, the three Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, as well as other Nordic countries like Finland, uh, Northern European countries like finland and the netherlands and then we have australia israel is also a very egalitarian culture um but that you know that's about it those are the countries that are more egalitarian than the u.s in the world and in those countries the u.s is stereotyped as being extremely hierarchical so if you talk to a a danish person about um, the american culture he'll say you know wow in the u.s i know you guys always just you know are focused on the, the position of the person and making sure that you are kind of like bow, bowing down or following authority. Um, yeah so we have to understand where our own culture falls on the map.
1: Okay. I love that one. All right, so the notion on this one of the eight dimensions I'm leading is that a culture will vary between the degree of egalitarianness and the degree of hierarchicalness. And we can set anywhere on the scale in between. My perspective of where whether another culture is indeed hierarchical or egalitarian actually really comes from what is my comfort zone for me, if you will. And then getting people who are working across borders, trying to appreciate those differences in scale and not ever react to them, is the magic in being able to work across borders. Okay? All right, so talk to me about the second, uh, the next one I want to focus on, which is communicating. And you talk about that between low context and high context. What do you mean, why does that matter? Right.
2: So, what I look at with communication is countries uh, like the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is the strongest in the world here. So, here we can kind of you know make a qualification about the U.S. So, uh, like the U.S., where we are really taught that good communication is clear and simple and explicit. So I mean in the U.S., we learn that if you want someone to like, understand something, like I want you to understand blue, well, I have to say blue. Right? Uh, we learn in the U.S. that if I give a presentation, I should tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I tell you, and then I tell you what I've told you. Right? So we have a strong focus on, on the explicitness of, of the message, the clarity and the simplicity of the message. Um, but in many other countries in the world, so um, Latin American countries, Countries, Southern European countries, um, the Middle East, Asia, Africa. There's a much stronger focus on the fact that good communication is subtle and layered and nuanced and implicit. So, I mean, sometimes I, I think about language. I told you that I've lived in France now for 17 years, and. Um, there are these words in the French language that don't even exist in English. So uh, one of them, actually, this is a, a fun word because it exists in all Latin languages. So, for example, um, in Italian, the word "sotenteso," which is sous-entendu in French, this word means uh, don't listen to what I said. Listen to what I meant. Right. So uh, the what the message I pass to is between the lines, or there's another word in in French which is to say something at the deuxième degré, which means to say something at the second degree, and that means you know what. I passed, I said something, but then there was also another message that I wanted you to understand simultaneously, right? So, um, so please don't listen to just what I meant. Listen to what I really meant, right? Um, so what happens then is that, I'm mean, like, okay, I just have, like, dozens of examples, but one example would be that... Um, in the in the U.S., like at the end of a meeting, we almost always do a recap, right? First we do a verbal recap, and then we do a written recap. And, you know, we believe, Americans, that that's a good communication. And I was working with an American a while ago who was uh, working in France, and he said, gosh, you know, at the end of a meeting here in France, it's so so surprising because I get ready to do that recap, and my French colleagues just, you know, stand up, and someone says, et voila. And I always think to myself, but voila, what? Uh, But then I'm surprised to see that people just know what's been decided. They understand what's supposed to happen next uh, without going through all of those levels of clarification that I'm used to. So the one thing we can see is that in the U.S., uh, um, the written word, like the clarification of the written word is so important versus in uh, more implicit cultures or high context. Cultures, I call them in my book. um, Often, it's the verbal message uh, and what we said when we looked between, uh, looked one another between the eyes that was so important. I'll also go back to that example I gave earlier about when I was in Japan and having to read the bright eyes. Uh, So, Japan is the most implicit. Country in the world, which means they pass the most messages between the lines of any other country. There's actually an expression in Japanese which is kuki yomenai. They shorten it to ky, and it means someone who is unable to read the atmosphere, or someone who is unable to read the air. Uh, So, I mean, in Japan, a good communicator can pick up all of those subtle messages in the atmosphere. And in, uh, a poor communicator is really kooky yomani, which unfortunately is the position an American usually finds themselves in.
1: Kooky Yomani, I love that phrase, can read the air, it puts a new context on being able to read the room. Again, I come back, Erin, to how criti- how difficult it would be, even if you knew the differences, but to be able to pick them up when your only form of communication is via telephone.
2: Yeah, well I think there are a lot of strategies that we can use once we're aware of this. I mean let me just kinda of give you a simple example. So um, I had someone from India who was on the uh, who was in my class a while ago and he said to me, Well, Erin, uh, you know, in India at the end of a meeting no, sorry, I'm getting mixed up. He said, you know, um, Erin, in India if we have a telephone call and at the end of the phone call, um, No, we make some decisions verbally. No, for an Indian, that would really be enough, right? That would be enough for me. And then if you get off of the phone and you put into writing everything that we've decided and you send that written recap to me, you email that to me, that would be an indication to me that you don't trust me. So, I mean, just as far as strategies go, I think that one thing that we can keep in mind as Americans is that our habit of repeating ourselves quite frequently and putting things in writing often may sometimes be misunderstood as either being condescending, like maybe they'll think that we think they're not very smart, or it could come off as being, as in this situation, a sign that you don't feel trust for the person so just being aware of that can lead you to you know think before you you know repeat yourself three times about whether maybe just saying it once would have been enough and you know if you don't need to put it in writing then you know go ahead and just leave it
1: Leave it verbally for a while. It says an awful lot about trust, doesn't it? I can, I'm just thinking about how many hundreds of times I have seen this mistake made and wondering why you don't get the response on the other end that you were expecting in this particular context. Fascinating. All right, so Erin, we're gonna take a break. Um, With me today is Erin Mayer. She's the author of The Culture Map, Breaking Through the Invisible Boundaries of Global Business. Erin is a professor at INSEAD in France, and having, as you've heard, worked around the world in Africa, Asia, Europe, growing up in the United States. Erin is a specialist in helping leaders, especially successful global ones, navigate the complexities of a multicultural environment. We've been talking about Aaron's map for uh, understanding the differences between cultures. And again, to repeat, there are eight dimensions to this map. We've just been talking about communicating where there's a high context or a low context. Um, we've talked about leading, whether it's egalitarian to hierarchical, and then there are six others, evaluating, deciding, trusting, disagreeing, and scheduling. So when we come back, I want to pick up with some of these other components and talk about what they mean and what we do about it. We'll be right back.
0: the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it
1: is your business running? It should be running smoothly, with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samal. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3pm Eastern Time and 12 new
0: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone,
1: Welcome back. With me today is Erin Mayer, and we've been talking about Erin's work that is in her book, The Culture Map, Breaking Invisible Boundaries of Global Business. Erin's a professor at INSEAD in France, which is an internationally recognized business school, and she's been working for quite a while in helping global leaders understand multicultural environments, how to get the best out of people when you're working across boundaries. Whether that means you're the boss, whether that means you're an expat, or whether that means you are um, working on a task force that's distributed around the world. Now, I've always enjoyed Erin's work, and I particularly enjoy the eight dimensions that she talks about that describe the culture map. But what I found so fascinating so far is this notion that where I see you sitting on the scale, let's say from egalitarian to hierarchical, really depends on where I sit. So we can take a culture that is fairly egalitarian, and depending upon my perspective, I will see it as hierarchical or egalitarian, depending where I sit. So it is all relative. There's no single absolute in this one. The second thing, Erin, that has struck me about this is the subtlety in the communication, often in the nonverbal communication. So we've talked about leading, this dimension between being egalitarian versus being hierarchical. I should say two, not versus. And we've talked about communicating whether it's a more, uh, whether it ranges from a lower context to a higher context. So I want to turn and talk about evaluating. One of the things that gets a lot of leaders stumped, even when it's peer to peer and you're trying to do an evaluation of the other person, tell us about that one and how that works in multicultural or doesn't work. Yeah, well, that dimension
2: is about how we provide negative feedback to people in different countries. I In every country, we believe that if we give negative feedback, we should give it constructively. But what it means to give constructive feedback is very different from one country to another. So I think that one of the things that's particularly puzzling to most of the world about Americans, for example, is that although in most ways American business Culture is very focused on, you know, clarity and simplicity and explicitness, as we just talked about. Um, that's true in all situations, like except when it comes to talking about something negative. And you know, here in the U.S., uh, when it comes to this, in the U.S., we are taught to give three positives with every negative, and to catch people doing things right. Um, I've actually seen that Americans. I've seen in my research that Americans give more positive feedback and more. A stronger positive feedback by using words, you know, like excellent or fantastic uh, than any other country in the world. Uh, so um, this can be really, really confusing, and I'll just give you an example. So um, as you know, I live in France, and although the French culture is a more... Um, Let's say implicit culture in general and the way that the French communicate. When it comes to giving negative feedback, the French don't provide much positive feedback. And when they do provide it, it really means a lot. Um, and then positive feedback is more likely to be given a little bit more, more sorry, certain negative feedback is likely to be given a little bit more bluntly. So I worked with this French woman a while ago, and I think this is a really important example because it's kind of indicative of the type of examples I see all the time around the world of people being managed by Americans. So I worked with this French woman, her name was Sabine, and I worked with her in Paris. She was really enthusiastic. She was moving to the U.S. And after she had been in Chicago for about four months, I did a pre-schedule follow-up call, and I started by calling her new boss, who was this American named John, and I asked John, you know, how are things going for Sabine in her new role? And John said to me, they're not going very well. He talked to me about all the problems. He said, what's so frustrating is that I've spoken to Sabine about these issues several times, and she's not making any effort to, to change, to change her behavior. He said, I had my first performance review with her last week. I was, again, very clear with her. I'm hoping to see some effort soon. So I got off of the phone with him and I called Sabine and I asked Sabine, you know, how are things going in the U.S.? And she said to me, you know, things are going great. She said, you know, for the first time, I've found a job that's just perfect for me. Really, it's, you know, just going better than ever. And I had my first performance review with my new boss last week. It was just great. It was the best performance review I've ever had. And of course, you know, what's happened here is that because in the U.S., we give so much more positive feedback than in a country like France. And we even believe that when we give negative feedback, we should start by telling people what we respect and like about their work before we tell them what they should do differently. And Sabine was like, wow, this is the best performance review I've ever received, by the time he got to the real message, she wasn't even listening anymore. So I think, you know, just as far as practical strategies, what that means is that when we are, if, if you're an American leader and you take on teams in other parts of the world, you need to recognize that the style of wrapping positives around negatives can be very confusing to our international teams. And, you know, if you want to say something positive, say something positive. If you want to say something negative, say something negative. But when you wrap it together, um, the cultural nuance is likely to confuse the people that you're speaking with.
1: Okay. Fascinating. So talk for me a minute about German culture. Where are they on this whole notion of evaluating? How, How do they think about it?
2: Yeah, so Germans are much more direct with negative feedback than... Uh, than Americans are, than most of the world. Are. Like, okay, like if we look at the most direct, and again, if, if people are interested in looking at where the different countries fall, they can go out to, this, uh, to my website, to erinmeyer.com, where I have on my tools page these listings of where the different countries fall, or you can look at my book, The Culture Map, where I have these rankings. But, like, if we look at the rankings, I mean, the most direct cultures in the world, so cultures where when we give negative feedback, we're most likely to just say, you know, this was terrible, or this is what, uh, this was inappropriate, or we're most likely, you know, just give the negative feedback. And in these countries, we also are more likely to use upgraders when we give negative feedback by saying an upgrader is a word that makes the negative message feel stronger, like this is totally inappropriate or this is absolutely unprofessional. Um, So in those countries, and Germany is one of them, the most direct countries in the world are Russia, Israel, the Netherlands and then Germany. Um, so that can be quite startling for an American who is working with a German person when the German person, you know, sits down and says, well, you know, I uh, I got your report and I thought that this section was weak and this section is um, is inappropriate. I mean, the American may feel like, oh my gosh, you know, he's arrogant and uh, he hates me and I don't want to work with him anymore. But if we recognize that that's really just constructive feedback in that culture, then we can adapt our reaction uh, to understand the message
1: as it was intended. Okay. It strikes me though that we must have a lot of individual differences within a culture. Because I have certainly worked with Germans who couldn't give a direct negative me- f- feedback message if their life depended on it. Um, so, what's your experience of individual differences?
2: Yeah, so actually, we probably should have talked about that. Earlier, We probably shouldn't have spoken for half an hour about culture without making this point, which is that I know people often feel concerned when we start talking about cultural differences. Like, you know, how can we talk about what a culture is like when every individual is different? And um, I think what's really important is that, of course, when I look at the research data, I see lots of variation in each environment. So we can see a curve of what would be a common behavior in Germany, or a common behavior in Mexico, or a common behavior in the U.S., and, you know, then, of course, within each culture, you need to adapt your style to the individual you're working with, but the curves are not exactly in the same place. Um, So, yeah, you might find that, you know, you're working with a German person who's actually much less direct than Americans, uh, but overall the uh, the standard deviation or the average position would be more to the direct side. So what the, this tool helps you do is not identify what an individual is like, but instead it helps you to answer the question, when you're working internationally, what's cultural and what's personal, so that you can start to work out where you you need to adjust and in what ways, uh, you know, this is actually just individual differences that you're dealing with.
1: Okay. All right. That makes sense. The reason I asked that is because my German colleagues accuse me of being very direct as an American style. So it was, I just had to follow up on that one. Let's try right, try th- but sorry, but yeah. just to just to
2: clarify one, I mean, because we have the communicating and the evaluating sc- scale, that right. can be very confusing. Because Americans are so explicit, the most explicit culture in the world, often other countries are surprised that Americans say so much so many things, things that could otherwise go unsaid, right? Uh, but then we also do that wrapping, which
1: is confusing. Right. I think that's fair enough on that one. Good point, a reminder. All right, so let's turn to one of my favorite topics, which is trusting, and one that I know from working with clients creates all sorts of confusions around the world where a manager will say, just trust me, and, um, you know, sometimes and sometimes not. So how does this dimension work? Yeah, so that's actually the most
2: important of all of the eight dimensions on the culture map scale because in every country, of course, we can't get any work done if we don't have trust. And how we come to feel trust seems to be very different from one part of the world to another. So um, I divide uh, the trust up into two different types of trust. So we have what we call cognitive trust. Cognitive trust is trust from your brain. That's why I see you do good work, you're on time you have a good product, you're reliable, I trust you. And then we have what we call effective trust, which is like trust from your heart, right? That's like I feel an emotional bond with you or a personal uh, connection with you. I feel some level of friendship. I feel like I've seen who you are behind your professional persona. And because I, I feel that personal bond with you, I feel trust for you. And, you know, whether I, you know, if I ask you how, um, you know, what kind of trust you feel for your mother, no matter what country you come from, you'll talk to me about uh, effective trust, right? Trust from your heart. But if I ask you why you trust a business partner, we're a lot more likely to see differences as to how people in different countries respond to that question. Uh, so, for example, um, Okay, so let me just kind of try to break this down. So in the U.S., we have a strong focus in business on separating cognitive and effective trust. So it's sort of like cognitive trust for work, right, Uh, effective trust for home. And we almost feel in the U.S. that if we get too close to one another, we develop, you know, like like too deep of a friendship with people that we're working with, that that's a little bit um, inappropriate. Because it may lead us to make what we would feel would be like, you know, not quite sound business decisions. Um, but in, in every emerging market country in the world, whether you are looking at China or India or Nigeria uh, Brazil, in every emerging market country in the world, there is a much stronger focus on effective trust, meaning that I don't really feel trust for you until I've gotten to know you at a deep level. So maybe I'll just give you like some examples then as to how this comes up. Um, I was working with these uh, Americans who were pitching a product in China, and you know they had a um, they had the slot to give their pitch, so they prepared their presentation. They went out perfect, and they rehearsed, and they and they went to China, and they were, they were just, you know, it, every word was polished. So they gave the presentation, and you know, afterwards they got on the airplane coming home, and they didn't get the business. And then they thought, oh, well, you know, maybe our price was too high. They wondered if maybe their message hadn't resonated well enough. But later on they found out that the business had gone to a group in Malaysia who 'd actually had a higher price, uh, but what the Malaysians had done was spend you know multiple um, trips and meals and evenings out but just really getting to know their uh, their Chinese colleagues, so the Chinese felt you know. These people we know we can trust because we've seen who they are at a you know at a deeper personal level. So I think that that's a very important message for anyone uh, from the U.S. who wants to work internationally. Uh, which is that in most countries we need to spend more time developing those personal connections than would be necessary in uh, in the U.S.
1: Yeah, you. I I certainly see that, particularly as you said, with people doing sales and misunderstanding what is going to be an effective sales interaction in one region versus another region. So, Erin, if you know, we can look on your website again, ErinMayer.com, under the tools, and you'll get the graphic representation of different countries, and you get the sort of the country profile. And granted, there's a lot of individual differences within that profile. But do you advise people to ask uh, about the culture that you're working with or ask about the individual, even, that you're working with and try to get a sense on how people vary on these eight dimensions? I
2: absolutely believe that the one biggest mistake we make in international companies is that we don't talk about cultural differences enough. I think that we... um, you know, i am always like you know, why? Why has this happened? Why has it happened that people like, you know, entire companies, entire organizations have been working internationally for decades, having had very little understanding about, uh, about how these cultural differences are impacting their daily effectiveness. And I think that often we worry that if we talk about cultural differences that we will, you know, fall into making the person feel stereotyped or that will fall into making people feel like they're in boxes. So I have a couple of things to say about that. I mean one is that my main goal with my book, The Culture Map, is to start a discussion. To give people a language so that instead of just kind of feeling that the cultural differences are there and having kind of a negative perception, that they have you know real words to articulate what's going on. And that then they show, yeah, and then they show a lot of curiosity. And what I I, what I believe, what I know is that every every country in the world, people love to talk about their own culture. But when we talk about cultural differences, we have to make sure, you know, to kind of laugh at our own culture, make fun of our own culture a little bit, to... Um, to show interest, you know, like you can say, oh gosh, you know, and I know in the U.S. we give uh, feedback, by like wrapping all these positives around negatives. You know, how, how do you do it here in Russia? Is that what you do here? Right? And the more that you show curiosity, the more you get the discussion going. And, you know, then people may say, oh, well, you know, in Russia... I tend to be very direct with negative feedback, but not me. Me, I'm like a really indirect Russian. And that's fine, too, right? Some people can start having that discussion on their own global teams about the difference between culture and individuals. But we have to have the discussion.
1: Okay. I like that idea because um, I do think that there's a lot of individual differences within the culture. Just as you said, I'm a very indirect Russian. I'm not a typical Russian. But just to be able to understand some of these components as we begin to work together particularly when we're not going to have a lot of face time. So there's not going to be a lot of time to sort out these. It seems to me that a discussion guide would make a massive difference on this one. Now, Aaron, I can't resist. Are there some cultures that just never work well together? Oh, well,
2: you know, um, I don't know if I want to make a categorical statement like that, but what I would say is that There has been this research that was done that looked at um, expatriate failure rates. So it was measuring people going from one country to another who had to move home early because they weren't able to integrate into the culture that they moved to. And, you know, people often think that the highest expatriate failure rate would be, like, like Americans moving to China. But the actual highest failure rate, it was Americans, but it was Americans moving to the U.K., and you know, that happens because of something that we call cultural dissonance. And cultural dissonance arises because we, when we speak the same language, we often slip into the trap of thinking that the culture is the same. It's like if an American moves to China and people look different, they eat different foods, they speak a different language, culture's shouting at you. So then when the Chinese behave strangely, you think, oh, that's culture. I have to be really flexible and adaptive. And you know, learn what's going on here. But when the American moves to the UK, he's not thinking about culture at all. He's just thinking how he's going to get his strategy done. And then when he finds after a while that the British are behaving strangely, he's likely to think, you know, these individuals are incompetent instead of recognizing that there's a culture that he needs to be adaptive, that he needs to be adapting to. So I think that what's interesting about that research is that it shows us that small gaps matter. And that often it's the, more, the most subtle differences that lead to the most frustration. Uh, so I always encourage people when they're looking at my culture maps to not assume that two cultures that are, you know, kind of, kind of close-ish on the scale necessarily will be able to work easily together
1: like that one. The most subtle differences are the ones that lead to the greatest frustrations. Can you give me an example of a way in which an American would get it wrong with a British employee? Well, I
2: mean, one, one I think there's like many, right? But like one that's really common. So we went back, we were talking earlier um, when you and I started about uh, the difference between cultures that are more explicit, like the U.S., or cultures that are more implicit, like Well, comparatively, the U.K. So of all of the Anglo-Saxon countries, the U.S. is the most explicit, um, and the the U.K. the most implicit. This particularly comes up with sense of humor. So, I mean, the British have... The most implicit sense of humor probably on the planet, and you know, if you work in the UK, you see, gosh, you know, people are constantly delivering jokes with a totally deadpan face, and you know, I always tell the British when I'm in when I'm in London, if you make a joke to an American, you have to say "just kidding." <laughs> I mean, we don't know it's a joke unless you tell us a, tell us it's a joke first. <laughs> uh, but that's the kind of thing that can be can be very confusing. But another element is that you know, like. For example, Americans are much higher on their comfort with risk, um, risk tendency than the British are. So they may feel very frustrated the British are, uh, have a tendency to take more time analyzing the data or making sure that the decision will be right before stepping uh, versus, you know, in the U.S., where we're really comfortable uh, in comparison to most countries, just jumping in without having, you know, really thoroughly assured that we won't make mistakes.
1: Right. Fascinating. I love this. So the subtle differences, and again, I keep coming back to this whole point about when you don't have much time, you don't have much communication with each other, and it's all on the phone or via email, all of the subtlety is going to get lost if you're not very explicit in having the conversation at the very beginning. So, Erin, we've talked about communicating, which is the difference between explicit and implicit. We've talked about evaluating, whether you're more direct or indirect, and you're um, giving constructive feedback, negative feedback. We've talked about leading, whether it's more egalitarian or whether it's more hierarchical. We've talked about trusting, whether it's more head-centered, cognitive-centered versus heart-centered, relationship-centered. You have three other dimensions: deciding, disagreeing, and scheduling. So we just got a couple of minutes. Tell me about disagreeing. Oh well, that's actually
2: probably my favorite, my favorite dimension as an American living in France. Uh, so this dimension, it looks at how um, openly we express disagreement. And I'm just going to give you a little... Okay, so like the U.S. is a middle country on this scale. Um, in comparison to Asian countries or Latin American countries, we tend to be quite confrontational. Um, so the scale looks at more confrontational cultures to avoid confrontational cultures. But uh, but I've lived in France for 17 years, and uh, France is one of the most confrontational cultures in the... Well, on the planet, which means that, you know, French people are taught from a, a young age, and the school system is actually built around that, on um, the importance of, you know, uh, finding, of, of expressing and disagreement and having large debates. So I had this example, you know, that stuck in my head for 17 years, about when I first moved here to Paris with my French husband, and we went to a dinner party. And with his, a French friend of his, and I was the only non French person there. And as the dinner started out, um, things were going, I felt very well. And then partway into the dinner, the group got into what I thought was a big fight. So Danielle, the hostess, she started talking about uh, this golf. Tournament that takes place in her village and whether or not that tournament should continue or not. She said, remember she said, Oh, my, moi je suis pour. I'm for it continuing. And then she said all of the reasons she was for it continuing. And then her best friend, <laughs> Helen, said, Mais tu dis ça parce que tu es You say that because you're selfish. And then she said all the reasons that she was against it. And then, you know, everyone at the table was getting into it. Some people were for it and some people were against it. The voices were raising and arms were waving. You know, I just, like, was kind of sinking under the table, wishing I was anywhere but there. And Someone said, well, Erin, what do you think? I said, I, I have no opinion. But the the surprising part happened when, a few minutes later, the topic changed and there seemed to be no hard feelings between anyone at the table. In fact, you know, Elaine, who had just been calling Danielle selfish, uh, they went into the kitchen with their arms around each other, you know, best friends as always. And that's, you know, of course, that's a personal example, but we see that in business also. That in France, it would be very common uh, for um, a group of colleagues in a meeting to have a, you know, a very passionate disagreement, which in the U.S. would likely lead to a break in the relationship. I and, mean, you know, in, in Japan, would Definitely lead to a rake in the relationship. Um, So that's what that dimension looks like. And, you know, just having that awareness, we can start to adapt both our own approach and our own reaction uh, better to the, the country that we're working with.
1: Erin, that's a great point. I love it. Um, So now you can all see, listeners, why it is that I like Erin's model so much. With me today is Erin Mayer. She's the author of The Culture Map, Breaking Through the Invisible Boundaries of Global Business. If you'd like to check out some of the maps and the cultural differences, you can go to her website, Erin Mayer, spelled E-R-I-N-M-E-Y-E-R, Dot com slash tools, and you'll find all sorts of advice and tips and hints there. Erin, I think the thing that stands out about this for me is how subtle some of these differences can be and how much you need the language to talk about, both the cultural norms as well as the individual differences, and just a way of beginning to understand some of the the less obvious communication patterns. So, Erin, thanks for being a guest. It's
2: a great pleasure to be with you, Wanda.
1: All right. Join us next week for another episode.
0: Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.